1: This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, a brutal murder rocks a small town in New England. An arrest has been made, but does law enforcement have the right killer? This is the story of a sister's 19-year-old quest to prove her brother's innocence, and the murderer may still be walking among us. Welcome to Episode 5 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast two families forever intertwined by a murder, a case that is shrouded in lies, hidden evidence and a wrongful conviction. It begins in 1932, Germany, a country then permeated with poverty that saw the Nazi party gaining dominance in German parliament. Katharina Reitz was born on September 8th of that year. Not much is known of Katharina's early years, but in adulthood she married Charles Brow, and they had a son whom they also named Charles. He was born in the city of Mainz. The Brow family left Germany and settled in America, finding a home in Air Massachusetts, a small New England town a little over an hour northwest of Boston. The town was known as a major railroad junction for commercial locomotives and had deep-seated roots in American history with a training camp during the Civil War and home to the Army's Fort Devons. It was an up-and-coming and thriving town. In the 80s, though, it was home to just under 7,000 residents. As the town grew, so did the Brow family. Katharina and Charles welcomed a daughter, Melrose. Sometime in the morning of May 21st, 1980, Katharina Brow, then 48 years old, a mother and a grandmother, was murdered. Her body was found at 10.45am by her daughter-in-law. Katharina was lying in a pool of her own blood, The cause of death? Multiple stab wounds inflicted with what was thought to be a paring knife that was discarded and then later discovered in a trash bin. There were items missing from the scene. Katharina's purse, some jewellery and an envelope with a significant amount of cash inside. Was the murder a robbery gone wrong? Long before advancements in forensic science, the Air Police had the forethought to gather as much evidence as possible. They went to work collecting hair, blood and fingerprints found in the house. But investigators had their sights set on one person, Kenny Waters. Kenny Waters was born in Air, Massachusetts in 1954. He was one of nine children in the Waters family. His home life chaotic, as different fathers from the growing brood would come and go. Kenny's upbringing was rough, and in the first 20 years of his life, he was a familiar face with local law enforcement. In 1975, Kenny attacked 30-year-old Walter Scotty Ingram in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Kenny said he was so drunk that he could not remember the attack at an apartment building, but Scotty recalled that night. How could he forget? That evening, his throat and arms were slashed, with wounds so deep that he needed more than 20 stitches to heal. In court, Kenny pleaded guilty to aggravated assault and was sentenced to up to seven years in prison. He was released just 18 months later. But it would not be the last time Kenny Waters would find himself behind the barbed wire fence. After his release, Kenny moved to Rhode Island for a short time, then moved back to Air Massachusetts to help take care of his elderly grandfather. And it was there in air that Kenny lived with his girlfriend Brenda Marsh, next door to the Brow family. On the morning of May 21st, 1980, Kenny had finished his graveyard shift as a cook at the Park Street Diner, a throwback 1950s vintage de Diner that was open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and was popular with locals and tourists alike. Kenny clocked out at 8.30am and went back to the trailer home he shared with his partner Brenda to change his clothes. He wanted to quickly freshen up before he headed to the courthouse for 9am where he was due to face charges for assaulting a police officer. Kenny left the courthouse at 11am and went back to the Park Street diner until 12.30 that afternoon. When he arrived back home, he was met with a barrage of police cars lining the street, investigators swarming the neighbourhood. Someone had murdered Kenny's neighbour, Katharina Brow. Air police questioned Kenny Waters. Kenny gave them his seemingly airtight alibi of having been at work and then at the courthouse. Officers taking his statement noted no bloodstains, cuts, torn clothes or anything else that would raise red flags that Kenny was their suspect. However, they did fingerprint him just in case, as Kenny's reputation preceded him due to his criminal history. The investigation moved on and life continued as usual for Kenny Waters. The autopsy of Katharina Brow's body would reveal the gruesome details of the last hours of her life. Katharina was killed some time after her husband Charles left for work at 7.10am. Her body was found just over three and a half hours later at 10.45am. She would succumb to 30 stab wounds. Five of those would be to the heart. She was also struck with a blunt object. The medical examiner would make a terrifying statement that Katharina was alive for 10 to 20 minutes after being stabbed and was conscious approximately half that time. Katharina saw her killer or killers and knew she was going to die. There was no sign of forced entry but Katharina's purse with money and jewellery inside was missing, as was a large sum of cash she kept between some sheets in the linen closet. Nothing else was disturbed in the house. However, oddly enough, the kitchen faucet was left running. Fingerprints were found on the toaster and a can of beer, and the murder weapon, the paring knife with the etchings of Murphy Company on it, had the print of the killer, but the blade was later identified by Charles Brow as belonging to him. As found clutched in Katharina's hand indicated she fought for her life. About one month after Katharina's murder, Kenny and his girlfriend Brenda moved back to the Providence, Rhode Island area. Allegedly, Brenda said that one night Kenny was drunk and they were fighting. Brenda asked Kenny if he killed Katharina and he replied, Yeah, what's it to you? Brenda left him and moved back to Massachusetts. With Kenny now single in Rhode Island, the investigation into Katharina Brow's murder continued. What started to tip the scales of the inquiry towards Kenny being guilty was Brenda Marsh's new boyfriend, Robert Osborne. Osborne contacted local PD and claimed that Brenda told him that Kenny was the one that took Katharina's life, but Robert Osborne wanted money for his information. Air police run with this new tip and bring in Brenda Marsh for questioning. Brenda, not only Kenny's ex-girlfriend with whom he allegedly confessed to, but also the mother of his only child, was threatened that if she didn't back her new boyfriend Robert Osborne's claims, she would be charged as an accessory to murder. Brenda held fast, but after a threat to take her children away from her, she broke and told air police that the morning of Katharina's murder Kenny had come home drunk had a scratch on his face and that he never went to court that morning nor was he at work during the graveyard shift Brenda would not be the only scorned ex-lover to turn the tides on Kenny Rosanna Perry initially claimed she had no information on Kenny being Katharina's murderer but after a three hour interview session riddled with arrest threats by the police Rosanna broke and claimed that during another drunken rant, Kenny told her he stabbed a woman and stole her money and jewellery. Two years after the killing, in 1982, Kenny Waters was arrested and charged with the murder of Katharina Brough. Two families... The Brow family and the Waters family would forever be synonymous with one of Air Massachusetts' most brutal murders, the death of a loving grandmother who was supposedly killed by the local felon. Kenny Waters was in custody and awaiting trial for the murder of 48-year-old Katharina Brow on May 21, 1980. The Waters family weren't worried about the impending legal proceedings. In particular, Kenny's younger sister, Betty Ann Waters. Betty Ann knew her brother's alibi was strong. The fact that Kenny said he was at work and at the courthouse during the time of the murder, surely there were time cards and witnesses that could verify his movements. But just to be sure... And because they could not afford to hire a private attorney, Betty Ann started her own sleuthing to see what her brother and the family would be up against. Betty Ann's first attempt at confirming Kenny's timeline was to contact the Park Street Diner. But would they still have the time cards dating back two years? It was a gamble, but Betty Ann had to try. Kenny's former place of work did in fact still have the time cards, but they had already turned them over to the Air Police Department. Prior to the trial, Kenny's defence team asked the judge to conduct a voir dire in regards to the statements made by Brenda Marsh and Rosanna Perry. A voir dire is French for to speak the truth and is used to determine the competency of the witnesses to testify. In this case, the defence questioned the voluntariness of Brenda and Rosanna's statements, but in the end, the judge declined to conduct a voir dire. The trial would be moving forward in May of 1983, and damning evidence linking Kenny, Katharina and the diner would be exposed. It transpired that Katharina was a regular at the Park Street diner where Kenny worked. Taking the stand was A.D. Ogden, a friend of Katharina's and also an employee at the diner. Ogden testified that everyone knew that Katharina carried a lot of cash in her wallet, and going so far as to say it was widely known that she kept a lot in the linen closet between the sheets. Was Kenny one of those people that knew about the cash on Katharina's person and hidden at her home? but A.D. Ogden's testimony had not finished yet. Ogden claimed that a few weeks after the murder, Kenny came to the diner and said he hated Katharina because when he was ten years old, he got caught breaking into her house. She turned him in to the police. His punishment was being sent to reform school. Trying to keep the conversation and mood light, or maybe as a way to deter Kenny, Ogden said she was happy she had a guard dog, a German shepherd that would prevent anyone from entering her house. Kenny's reply was, quote, dog or no dog, when he wants to kill, he will kill. And if all that testimony was not enough, Ogden stated that after Katharina's murder, Kenny came to the diner asking her if she wanted to buy a ring and necklace that he had. The pit of her stomach dropped as Ogden recognised the pieces of jewellery as gifts she had given Katharina in the past. Knowing these were possible pieces of evidence, Ogden paid Kenny $5 for the ring, which she promptly turned over to the Air Police Department. Next to take the stand, Kenny's ex-girlfriend Brenda Marsh. After swearing to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, Brenda informed the court and started about a week before the murder when Kenny told her that the German woman next door was known to have a lot of money in her home and that he wanted to get his hands on it. Then, about 10 pm the night before Katharina's body was found, Brenda said that Kenny left the house in his work clothes, apparently heading off to the diner. When she called the restaurant sometime later, she was told Kenny was not working. When Kenny arrived at their home on May 21st in the late morning, he was wearing his same work clothes but she said she saw a new scratch on his face. He told her it was, quote, "'None of her business,' and went to bed.' Later that day, with cop cars still at the scene, Brenda testified that Kenny said to her that if the police came, tell them he wasn't there. In June of 1980, Kenny and Brenda moved to Providence, Rhode Island, and the fight that Brenda recounted to authorities where Kenny confessed to, quote, "'Killing that woman back there' took place." Brenda moved to Worcester, Massachusetts the following day. Next on the stand was Rosanna Perry. She testified that during the summer of 1980, the two had met a few times while Kenny was drinking. He said that he had been, quote, Picked up for murder, they couldn't pin it on him. Then in the winter of 1982, he allegedly stated to Rosanna that he killed, quote, "...the old German bitch," stabbed her and stole her money and jewellery. And another bombshell would come out at the trial. The prosecution said that the time cards showing Kenny was at the diner were allegedly never presented or even found. Kenny Waters did not testify in his own defence. A jury of his peers found him guilty of first-degree murder and armed robbery. He was convicted on May 11, 1983, and sentenced to life in prison. Kenny Waters was 29 years old.
0: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Life went on for most residents of there. The Brow family had received the justice they sought for their mother, Katharina's brutal murder. For Kenny Waters and his family, the fight had just begun to try to prove his innocence. Between 1983 and 1999, appeal after appeal for Kenny's conviction was made, even going so far as Rosanna Perry contacting the Waters family saying that she was sorry that she had lied about what Kenny had told her and that she wanted to recant her statement. Kenny's sister Betty Ann found a lawyer to take Rosanna's statement. A 35-page affidavit was filed admitting that she lied under oath. Kenny's leave to appeal was granted. But the victory wouldn't last long. When put in the hot seat again, Rosanna said that she had switched her story because Kenny had pressured her to say she lied. Now Rosanna was afraid she would go to jail for perjury. She said she was sticking with her original story of Kenny Waters admitting he killed Katharina Brow. The appeal failed. Betty Ann Waters never wavered in believing that her brother was innocent. But Kenny, now realising it was inevitable that he would spend the rest of his days in prison, attempted to end his life. In an interview with the UK publication The Guardian in 2010, Betty Ann recounted a conversation between Kenny and herself. Kenny said to her, quote, Betty Ann, I can't live the rest of my life in prison. I just can't do it. Betty Ann, if you go back to school and you become my attorney, I know you'll get me out of here. I don't care how long it takes. Incredibly, she agreed, as long as her brother did not attempt suicide again. At this time, Betty Ann Waters was in her thirties with a family of her own, a husband and children. She was working as a waitress in a bar, and she had no qualifications, not even a high school diploma. She earned her GED and enrolled in a local community college, determined on fulfilling the promise she made to her brother. Over the course of 13 years she would get her bachelor's degree, a master's degree in education and enroll in Roger Williams University in Rhode Island for law school for her JD degree, a Juris Doctor, the status she would need to be able to get her brother out of prison. The path to get there was not a smooth one. After obtaining her bachelor's degree, her husband left her, and her children went to live with him for about a year. But she never gave up. It was in law school that things started to look up and take a turn for the better. On campus, Betty Ann met fellow student Abra Rice, and the two became firm friends, confidants and down-the-road co-councils. During a research session, Betty Ann had read a paper on the new use and application of DNA and how it pertains to investigations and trials. Betty Ann then learned about Barry Sheck and the newly formed Innocence Project. Peter Neufeld and Barry Sheck founded the Innocence Project in 1992 with the goal to exonerate the wrongfully convicted through DNA. To date, the organisation has exonerated 192 defendants through this method. Armed with a plethora of legal knowledge, Betty Ann could not help but think, what if she could not help her brother? In her heart, she knew he was innocent, but what evidence would she find to prove it? Then the light bulb went off. Suppose she could get the original evidence from Katharina Brow's murder. In that case, she could test it for DNA and hopefully clear her brother's name. There was one catch, though Betty Ann was not technically a lawyer yet. So, along with Abra Rice, she had to come up with a plan. The plot was to say they were writing a research paper and they called the clerk's office in Boston. The ruse was on. But disappointingly, the clerk said everything from the brow case had been destroyed. Not taking this as an acceptable answer, the two convinced the clerk to search the back rooms, and there, dusty boxes contained the evidence they were hoping for. A scrap of curtain with blood on it, and the murder weapon. The knife. Jackpot. Knowing Kenny's case and the recovered evidence was bigger than them, Betty Ann and Abra Rice reached out to the only person they thought could help them take on this risky endeavour. Barry Sheck and the Innocence Project. Once Sheck was caught up to speed on the facts of the case and evidence, he agreed to act as co-counsel. They could test the blood on the curtain and murder weapon for DNA, cross-checking it against Kenny Waters. In a surprise and stomach-sinking twist, Kenny refused to submit his DNA. Betty Ann told reporter Decker Atkinhead in 2010, quote, He didn't understand DNA. It was still new and he was afraid that they would plant evidence to show that he was guilty when he wasn't. After fully explaining how it worked and what they hoped would happen, Kenny finally agreed. The findings were compared to the DNA found on the knife and curtain. The results showed that it was not Kenny Waters' DNA on either item. After 13 years of Betty Ann's life devoted to freeing her brother, Kenny was exonerated in March 2001. He walked out of a courtroom in Boston a free man. He was the 83rd prisoner at the time in the US, whose conviction was overturned as a result of DNA evidence. Kenny spoke with media outlets about Betty Ann after leaving the courthouse. I think it's absolutely amazing that she's dedicated her life to this. It's been 19 years and uh, my whole family suffered, unbelievable.
0: And we all love
1: her. And uh, we're all just happy. The murder conviction of Kenny Waters was overturned. Still, the district attorney wanted to order a retrial to try and convict Kenny on accessory to murder. Just because his DNA was not on the murder weapon did not mean he was not at the scene of the crime. They were seemingly back to square one. Betty Ann knew there was one person that could help her brother once and for all. Well, maybe two. Betty Ann had to find Kenny's two ex-girlfriends and get them to admit they lied. Brenda Marsh once again changed her story. Rosanna Perry admitted that she was coerced by law enforcement and offered to have her record thrown out if she agreed to say Kenny killed Katharina. Rosanna, like Brenda, signed an affidavit stating her original testimony was a lie. Nearly two decades later, after the murder of Katharina Brow and the conviction of Kenny Waters for her death, he was officially a free man. News of the Kenny Waters exoneration made national headlines and even found him making the rounds on daytime talk shows, appearing in nightly news interviews. But that was not where Kenny Waters' story ended. Just six months after his release from prison in 2001, Kenny was involved in a freak accident. He tripped, hopping over a fence and fell 15 feet onto the concrete below. Kenny Waters died in hospital 13 days later, at the age of 47. Betty Ann was left without her brother, after years of education and fighting for his release. However, her struggle did not die with Kenny. There was still one more thing she had to do. Betty Ann wanted to substantiate that the Air Police Department framed Kenny for a murder he didn't commit. She said to The Guardian in 2010, The DNA evidence exonerated Kenny but it didn't prove what the Air Police did to Kenny on purpose. And that's what I wanted to prove. And set out to prove it, she did. In the police reports, Etienne noted there was mention of fingerprints gathered at the scene, but yet that evidence was never submitted in court. The police department said that no usable fingerprints were found at the location of the crime obtaining this piece of evidence was not a smooth and easy process. Seven years went by before the information was finally released. During that time, Betty Ann found that the state police officer in charge of fingerprinting retired a week before Kenny's arrest. And while packing up his office, he took the Katharina Brow crime scene prints home with him. Like many retirees, he moved to Florida and put those prints in a storage unit. He denied having any evidence relating to the murder. Still, after a subpoena was issued and the storage unit searched, there were the prints, along with a document eliminating Kenny from the fingerprints found at the crime scene. They tested twice just to be certain. Betty Ann also discovered that the print reports were never turned over to the prosecutor's office. They also found those supposed missing diner time cards that showed Kenny was in fact at work during the time of Katharina Brow's murder, solidifying her suspicion that the police knew Kenny was not the murderer from the beginning of the investigation. In 2009, Betty Ann filed a federal lawsuit and settled for $3.4 million between five of the six town's insurance companies and a federal judge awarded the estate $10.7 million from the sixth company, claiming Kenny Waters' civil rights were violated. Victory at last, but bittersweet as Kenny was not alive to receive his reparations. The Air Police Department's investigation into Katharina Brow's murder was heavily scrutinised and seen as being mishandled. So when the payout was awarded, retired Air Police Department Chief Philip Connors expressed his disappointment to the Lowell Sun a few months after the ruling, saying, Waters should have faced retrial by the district attorney's office. The failure of the DA's office to do this set up the taxpayers of air several insurance companies and others for great and unnecessary financial suffering. There is no reason to believe that at a new trial the jury would not have again convicted Waters. There was ample evidence for a jury to convict Waters even though his DNA was not found at the murder scene. I am very angry that in all the hysteria that the media has presented about Kenneth Waters, so little has been said about the victim and how little has been said about her family's suffering. The story of Kenny Waters and his wrongful conviction grabbed the attention of Tinseltown and Hollywood movie moguls. A film titled Conviction was in the works based on the true story, starring Hilary Swank as Betty Ann, Minnie Driver as Abra Rice, and Sam Rockwell as Kenny but not everyone was excited to see their story on the silver screen. Katharina's children Melrose and Charles hired famed attorney Gloria Olred. They held a press conference on October 14, 2010, a day before the film's release. In a statement posted on the attorney's website, The family expressed their frustration with the film's producers and cast.
0: We are here today because the children of murder victim Katharina Brow want to express their disappointment and their anger about what they believe is a failure by the producers of the new movie Conviction to show respect and compassion for their family when it was the brutal murder of their mother that triggered events which are the basis for this feature film
1: Melrose Brow also issued the following statement, almost as a message to Hilary Swank and the makers of the film.
0: We are not Hollywood people like you are. We are just children of a murder victim. Nevertheless, we believe that victims matter. My mother was not just a name and was not and is not a person who should be used as a line in a script or just a way to make a profit for the entertainment industry. She was a very special human being and an essential member of our family. She worked hard every day to support us in every way possible.
1: Melrose Brow added, quote, We cannot say whether or not Kenneth Waters was a victim, but we know to a certainty that our mother was. Conviction was released by Fox Searchlight on October 15, 2010, and grossed over $11 million worldwide. After the red carpet was rolled up, Betty Ann Waters resumed her work at Aidan's Pub in Bristol, Rhode Island, where she was the co-owner and general manager. She also helps others who are wrongfully convicted, advocating for legislation and other reforms, while continuing to do pro bono work with the Innocence Project. Katharina Brow's son Charles passed away unexpectedly in 2019, never knowing the true identity of his mother's killer and her daughter Melrose Brow is currently living in the Los Angeles area. Now in breaking news, we reached out to the Air Police Department and new police chief Brian Gill on the status of Katharina Brow's murder, and he issued They Walk Among America this exclusive statement. Over the years, the Air Police Department has continued following up on any leads that come in from the public. We will continue to pursue new forensic genetic technologies as they emerge and use those investigative tools to help identify the murderer and bring justice to Katharina Brow. We also hope that this podcast will help generate new interest. And lead to new information that will assist in bringing the perpetrator of this heinous crime to light. Any information can be called into the Air Police Department's anonymous tip line at 978 772 8200, extension 575. This episode was researched and written by Kelly McClear and edited by Brad Maybe. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit laurencrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening.